The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy mountain of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Okay, we are in Judges chapter 6. This is a passage that is so interesting when you read it. I don't know anybody that would read the Bible and not say, what is going on here? You know, it's just one of those memorable passages, and uh, I just can't believe that we're in Judges 6 to do this today. This is uh, Judges 6, verses 33 through 40. It's entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel, part 4. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together. Then they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizarites gathered behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece with a bowlful of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece. But on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Okay, I decided to start making a note in my sermons on what day I typed a particular sermon. So if I tell you this, it's because I made a note on it. This sermon was typed on 20 November 2023. Adam Clark's commentary often has interesting insights into what is going on in the surface text. At times, he provides his own thoughts on what a passage is typologically presenting. At other times, however, he will openly dismiss the idea of any passage even hinting at typology. What this shows is that he thinks there is an overall picture of something, but that is all that it is. 
The details are irrelevant to the overall picture. If that is his approach, it is a rather sloppy way of looking at things. What would be the point of giving such minute details of things that are otherwise completely unnecessary to a particular story unless the Lord is telling us precious details of typology? Maybe Clark just couldn't figure out what was being conveyed, and so he found fault in those who thought they could. Of this passage, from Judges 6, he cites the work of the church father, Origen. Origen, this is Adam Clark on Origen. On the miracle of the fleece, dew, and dry ground, Origen, in his eighth homily on the book of Judges, has many curious and interesting thoughts. I shall insert the substance of the whole. The fleece is the Jewish nation. The fleece covered with dew, while all around is dry, the Jewish nation favored with the law and the prophets. The fleece dry, the Jewish nation cast off for rejecting the gospel. All around watered, the gospel preached to the Gentiles, and they converted to God. The fleece on the threshing floor, the Jewish people in the land of Judea, winnowed, purged, and fanned by the gospel. The dew wrung out in the bowl, the doctrines of Christianity extracted from the Jewish writings, shadowed forth by Christ's pouring water into a basin and washing the disciples' feet. Origen's thoughts are interesting and they are insightful, but there are problems with them that cannot be overcome. Finding proper typology reveals exactly why God chose some stories from history and completely ignores innumerable others. Improperly analyzing typology will lead people down odd paths of thought that have no real bearing on what is being portrayed. In Origen's case, he lived so long ago that much of what we now know concerning history could not have been deduced. Thus, there is an excuse if he missed the mark on what was being conveyed. We are further along in history and we can more clearly see what God is doing. Jesus is the key. But there are key points that are linked to the picture, such as Israel, the law, and so forth. Our text verse comes from Hosea 13. It is verse 3. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Of the dew on the fleece, John Lang sees it as the advent of Christ, saying his miraculous sign became the type of the highest and most wonderful miracle known to the church, the birth of Jesus from the Virgin Mary. Origen already speaks of the advent of the Son of God as the fall of the divine dew. So Lang looked to Origen and then he said, I have more to add to it, in other words. The thought is poetic but it does not match the rest of the typology being presented here. Everything else fits, or it does not. In this case, it doesn't. And yet, what the due pictures is based on Christ's work and what results from it. As for Clark, he finished his commentary on Origin and Chapter 6 of Judges, saying, All this, to some, will doubtless appear trifling. But it is not too much to say that scarcely any pious mind can consider the homily of this excellent man without drinking into a measure of the same spirit. So much sincerity, deep piety, and unction appear throughout the whole. Yet, as I do not follow such practices, I cannot recommend them. His words concerning origin are kind, even gracious. But his thoughts about origins finding typology in a passage such as this are dismissive. Hence, he would not appreciate my approach to Scripture. 
Typology is what explains what is otherwise inexplicable, and it is exactly what God is dealing in. As for my conclusions concerning today's passage, they are how I read what is going on. Origen's thoughts are not entirely out of the ballpark, but they do land a bit far out in left field. God is telling us a story through typology, and it is a great story indeed, because it is about what he has done in and through Jesus Christ. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is a fleece of wool in the threshing floor. It's verses 33 through 40. Verse 33, then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together. The people groups are singular. And all Midian and Amalek and sons east gathered together. The words take us back to the beginning of the chapter. This is Judges 6, 1 through 4. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also, Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. The raiders would come annually to steal away whatever produce had arisen from the labors of the land. It is the reason why Gideon was said to thresh wheat in the wine press, hiding from those who might spot him and raid what he had gathered. Midian is the main group afflicting Israel. The name comes from Madon, strife or contention, that is derived from Din, to judge. Thus it means strife or place of judgment. As you've seen in the previous sermons, it is place of judgment, picturing the tribulation period. Amalek was the first of Israel's enemies soon after leaving Egypt. The Lord declared war upon them from generation to generation. That is found in Exodus 17. Amalek is derived from Am, people, and Malak, meaning to nip or wring off the head of a bird with or without severing it from the body. Thus, they are the people who ring off. They are those who are disconnected from the body and strive to disconnect the body. The B'nai Kedem, or sons east, would be the various people groups, including Arab tribes, Ishmaelites, and so on. It is a way of saying anyone and everyone in the surrounding area gathered together. As for the word Kedem, or east, it means not only east in direction, but before in time, or that which has already been. This would be a great-sized force that is gathered. Verse 33 continues, And they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And crossed over and encamped in valley Jezreel. This is the area referred to in Hosea chapter 1, where the Lord uses the naming of Hosea's children as object lessons to Israel. In Romans 9, Paul picks up on the words of Hosea's prophecy and applies them to Israel during her time of rejection when the church is the focus of God's attention. In his first epistle, Peter then uses the words of Hosea 2 to reveal that Israel of the future, after the Gentile-led church age, will again be the people of God. Jezreel means God sows. 
being prefixed with emek or valley, it would be the depth of God sows. The emek being a broad, deep valley. One can see the similarity between the two names, Israel and Jezreel, when put side by side in the Hebrew. Yitzrael and Yisrael. They're very close in spelling. They're making a pun here. Israel, he strives with God, has received judgment for striving against God. Now that time is over, and God will strive with Israel, meaning for Israel, in the valley where God judges. Verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Veruach Yehovah lavsha et Gidon. And Spirit Yehovah clothed Gideon. The word lavash, to clothe, comes from a primitive root, meaning to wrap around. One can imagine the Spirit enfolding around Gideon like a garment. The thought is not unlike Galatians 3.27, where Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on, the word is endua, clothed with Christ, or have put on Christ. Gideon was selected as the judge of Israel. The Lord clothed him with his spirit, readying him for the challenges ahead. Verse 34 continues, then he blew the trumpet. Va bashofar, and blew in the shofar. Okay, had to do that for you. Anybody that was sleeping is now awake. Then he blew the trumpet. Vayitka bashofar, and blew in the shofar. The act is a call to arms for warfare. It was seen, for example, in Judges 3, where it says this, But Ehud had escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images, and escaped to Seirah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Gideon performed according to the word of the Lord by destroying the altar of the Baal, upon which was the image of Asherah. After that, the Spirit of the Lord clothed him. Now he is readied for the main part of his calling. It says in Judges 6.14, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Upon hearing those words, Gideon responded. Judges 6.15, So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. If you remember, theology was being developed in the exchange as Gideon was made to realize that the one he was speaking to was the Lord, Jehovah, and not merely a man. With that, the Lord responded, Judges 6, 16. Then the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. The Lord promised to be with him and he is clothed with the spirit of the Lord. Thus, he is suitably prepared for the battle against Midian. As for the shofar, it is a ram's horn. The name is derived from shafar, to be beautiful or comely. That comes from a root signifying to shine. Strong's notes the connection between the two thoughts is the clear sound. As something beautiful shines, so the beautiful sound shines forth from the shofar. Upon blowing in the shofar, it next says, verse 34 continues, and the Abizrites gathered behind him. And cried Abiezer after him. It is the same word, za'ak, used at the beginning of the chapter to signify the distress of Israel in their affliction. It said in Judges 6 6. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried za'ak out to the Lord. 
the New King James Version saying gathered behind is more of a paraphrase. The idea is that Gideon has sounded the trumpet and Abiezer has cried out as in a war cry after him. One can think of the famous rebel yell of the Confederate South. As for Abiezer, the spelling is different than in verses 11 and 24 of our previous sermons. There it said, Avi Ha Etzri, my father, the Ezrite, or father of the Ezrite. Here it reads, Abiezer, my father is help, or father of help. The entire clan of Abiezer is collectively named in the singular, but it refers to all who descended from him be it hundreds or even thousands. Along with them, verse 35, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered behind him. The words concerning Manasseh, Gideon's tribe, are emphatic. Umalachim shalach bekal Manasseh vayizaek gam hu acharav. And messengers sent in all Manasseh and cried also, he after him. The word translated as messengers means exactly that. But it is the same word, malach, ascribed to the Lord seven times in verses 6, 11 through 22. Manasseh means to forget and also from a debt. In hearing of Gideon's support from Abiezer, the rest of the tribe coalesced around Gideon as well, crying after him. And more, verse 35 continues, he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. Umalchim shalach be'asher. U bizvulun, u benaftali, va yaalu likratam, and messengers sent in Asher, and in Zebulun, and in Naphtali, and ascended to meet them. Asher failed to come forward for the battle at the time of Barak's engaging Sisera, as was noted in Judges 5. However, they are listed first here indicating a willingness to join with Gideon and his men. Zebulun and Naphtali, however, willingly joined both battles. As it says in Judges 5, Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. Asher means both blessed and happy. Zebulun means glorious dwelling place. Naphtali means my wrestlings. Verse 36, so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, it is a pregnant verse filled with things to contemplate. Vayomer Gidon el ha Elohim im yeshcha movoshiah beyadi et Israel ka'ashur dibarta. And said Gideon unto thee, God, if you are savior in my hand, Israel, according to which have spoken. Rather than God, it says, the God. As always, the article is expressive. It is used when referring to the one true God in relation to man. But more especially, it is in relation to those who are in a right relationship with him, or it is used to contrast those who are not in a right relationship with him. In this case, it is directly in relation to Gideon. Inserting the words, in my hand, between Savior and Israel, speaks of this intimate relationship. Also, rather than as you have said, it says, as you have spoken. It is an authoritative word of the Lord that expects no response or participation. I hate when translators translate the word said as spoke or spoke as said. Each has its own meaning, and when they change it, you lose that meaning. Despite that, Gideon fails to accept the spoken word of the God. However, 
Adam Clark says, Gideon was very bold and God was very condescending, but probably the request itself was suggested by the divine spirit. And why not? Gideon is clothed with the spirit of Jehovah. It would thus appear that the spirit of the Lord is using Gideon and his request as an object lesson for both the immediate context as well as for typological anticipations of the future. Verse 37, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. Hine, anochi matzig et gizat hatsemer bagoren. Behold, I, placing fleece, the wool, in the threshing floor. Rather than the common word sum to set, Gideon uses the word yatsag. The BDB says a vivid and forcible synonym of sum or sam. The word comes from a primitive root signifying to place permanently. Next, the gizah, or fleece, is found seven times in Scripture, all in Judges chapter 6. It is a feminine word coming from gazaz, to shear. That comes from a primitive root signifying to cut off. That is followed by the goren, or threshing floor. This is its only time that it is seen in the book of Judges. It is a place of separation and thus judgment. The chaff of the grain is separated from the kernel. It was referred to in the text verse from Hosea today, and this is also referred to by John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. Now as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Next, Gideon continues, verse 37. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground. This is a great verse here. If you can get this, you'll get what's going on. Im tal al hagizah. If dew become upon the fleece to her separation and upon all the earth, dryness. The word tal or dew comes from talal, to cover. The idea is that dew covers the vegetation each day. However, dew is something transitory and fleeting. That was seen in our text verse where it said, and like the early dew that passes away. The words speak for themselves. Gideon is asking for a sign concerning the challenge of the battle that is set before him. As for the word horev or dryness, it is the same spelling as horeb, the mount where the law was received. Both the word and the name come from the verb harav, to be dry or dried up. For Gideon, if he receives his request, verse 37 continues, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Again, it says spoken not said. Vayadati ki tovoshiyah beyadi et Yisrael ka'ashur dibarta. And I shall know for saving in my hand Israel. Gideon again places himself between the idea of saving and Israel. The significance is that the Lord is the one saving, but he is using Gideon to be the instrument of that salvation. Remember, Gideon pictures the gospel it all fits. Everything is fitting. Origin was actually not that far off in his analysis. If you remember what I read, he said, and again, he uses the word davar to speak. The Lord has spoken and he will accomplish. Verse 38, 
And it was so when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together. Vehiken va yeshchem mimachorat vayazar et hagiza, and is thus, and rising early from morrow and pressing the fleece. Just as Gideon requested, so it was. Here is a new and rare word, zur. It signifies to press down and out. To get the sense, the Lord says to Job, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush, zur them, or that a wild beast may break them. Think of stepping on an egg and it presses down and out. Or when you do a fleece, you roll it and you push outward. It's, that's what that word would indicate. Upon pressing the fleece, verse 38 continues, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Va yemet tal min hagiza, melo hasefel maim, and drained dew from the fleece, fullness, the bowl water. In pressing the fleece, the water drained out, and not just a bit. The word bull is sephel. This is the second and last use of it in the Bible. The first was in Judges 5.25, where Jael gave Sisera a majestic bull full of curd. The word comes from an unused root, meaning to depress. Thus, it is a deep bull. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Gideon's words of the verse, all of this verse that we're going to go through, are filled with cohortatives, justives, interjections, and anthropomorphisms, and so much more. Here he uses a joseph, an implied command. Vayomer Gidon el ha Elohim al yichar afecha bi. And said Gideon unto thee, God, not do burn your nostril in me. Gideon can see that he might get the Lord upset enough to have fire and smoke pour out of his nose and catch him on fire. Hence, he uses this Joseph, do burn. Next, he says, verse 39 continues, but let me speak just once more. The verb is cohortative. And let's speak surely the once. The word pa'am signifies a beat, as if pounding out on an anvil. In this case, he has spoken, but he wants to speak again. It is a request for another beat upon the anvil. Verse 39 continues, let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Again, the verb is cohortative. Anase na rakha pa'am bagiza. Let, I pray, only the once in the fleece. It is as if he is begging for the event to take place. If Clark was right in suggesting that it was by the Spirit that Gideon was asking for a sign in the fleece, it is surely now only Gideon who is asking. The Spirit provided a confirmation of the God's intention for what was to take place. However, Gideon suddenly realizes maybe there was dew everywhere and it evaporated off of the ground first. This should not be unexpected. Charles Ellicott, citing Lord Bacon, mm, Bacon, <laughs> notes the following. Sailors have used every night to hang fleeces of wool on the sides of their ships towards the water, and they have crushed fresh water out of them in the morning. That's how the sailors would get fresh water. Hang a fleece, it will fill with dew. The fleece then is like an absorbent sponge. Gideon would have known this and begs for another, clearer sign. Verse 39 continues, Now let it be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground, let there be dew. The first verb is a Joseph. Yehi, na. Chorev el hagiza, 
Lebada Let there be, I pray, dryness unto the fleece, to her separation, and upon all the earth become dew. Gideon knows this is impossible apart from the supernatural hand of the Lord. It is something that could not be otherwise. Verse 40, and God did so that night. Instead of the God, it now simply says God. Vaya'as Elohim ken balela hahu. And did Elohim thus in the night the it. The God whom Gideon stood in a right relationship with is the powers over creation, the one true God. He accomplished the sign Gideon requested and gave a memorial for future redemptive history. Verse 40 finishes with this. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. And is dryness unto the fleece to her separation, and upon all the earth was dew. The miracle occurred as proposed. The fleece is being used as a metaphor for the small army of Israel, while the surrounding area depicts the vast army of Midian. As Matthew Henry rightly states, these signs are truly miraculous and very significant. Gideon and his men were going to fight the Midianites. Could God distinguish between a small fleece of Israel and the vast floor of Midian? Gideon is made to know that God could do so. This is the immediate signification of the details in the story. Gideon has been given assurances that God has made a firm and complete distinction between Israel and the Midianites. However, one must ask, what is it that separates Israel from the other nations? What does it? In determining that, one can then perceive the typology that is being pictured. A fleece to show what God is doing, phases in a process going since time began. In what happens to the fleece, we are all viewing steps he is taking in a wondrous plan. He was working in one way in the past, revealing the heart found in man. What was found there could not last, but he knew that since before time began. One step leading to another along the way, revealing what we need most of all. Christ Jesus put that on full display. Are you yet ready to heed the call? Our second thought today is the law or grace. In the introduction today, Adam Clark summed up Origen's thoughts about the passage. He said, the fleece is the Jewish nation. Though that may be the surface intent, as Matthew Henry stated, and it may be insightful in regard to typology, there is a fatal problem with that analogy. The Lord regularly uses gender in typology, and he does so consistently, always. If you have a female here, it will always be a female typological. Everybody got that? Always the gender will match. In fact, he actually fills the entire Old Testament with gender discords to ensure proper typology is maintained. We saw one of those in the account of Jael and Sisera, where the text used a masculine imperative when it should have been a feminine imperative. It said there, Vayomer elecha amod petach ha'ohel, and said unto her, female, stand masculine imperative. So you got it would be like me saying, my brother is a nice girl. It doesn't make any sense. Door the tent. Well, he's doing that for a reason, which was explained during that sermon. Okay? He never changes the gender. So if somebody makes a typological anticipation, it has to match the gender or he is wrong. 
okay? In the book of Ruth, there are nine instances of gender discord in chapter one, and seven of them are spoken out by Naomi. I'll tell you right now, I might include this in a sermon later, but I'll tell you this right now. There is a professor every single year. He's a professor of Hebrew. And when he got his new classes in, he would have them translate Ruth. And he would say, there are these gender discords, and I want somebody to explain why. And he said, there's never been a person that could explain it. Go and watch the Ruth sermons. I explain exactly why they're there. At the end of the sermon, you will find out why those gender discords are in the book of Ruth. And they all are because of typological anticipations. Other gender peculiarities are found elsewhere in the book. Unless one understands that the Lord is working through typology in such instances, these discords make absolutely no sense at all. The problem with origins analysis is that the word nation, the name Israel, the word people, and so forth, are all masculine nouns. Therefore, his analysis cannot be correct, even if it is both insightful and mentally surprising. Giving credit where credit is due, he was not that far off from what is being pictured. The question just proposed as we closed out the mechanical analysis of the verses needs to be evaluated. I asked, what is it that separates Israel from the other nations? It is true that the Jewish nation is separate from the other nations, but this was because of their calling. And that calling as a nation was based on the Torah, the law, which is a feminine noun. Verse 33 took us back to the fact that Midian, Amalek and the sons of the east to come against the land, just as was noted at the beginning of chapter 6. Midian, place of judgment, is the main force. It speaks of the tribulation period that Israel will someday endure. Amalek, the people who ring off, are those disconnected from the body, meaning the body among whom God is present, and who strive to disconnect the body. This has been consistent since their first appearance of coming against Israel all the way back in Exodus 17. Every time Amalek is mentioned, typologically, that is what they're doing. Somebody trying to steal people away from the body. The chapter ended with the words, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. They are a true enemy, but they anticipate anyone who would attempt to nip the people of God off from the main body of his redeemed. We get people like that in churches all the time. They try to steal people away from the church and to their own little cults, away from having their focus on Jesus Christ. That would be an Amalek. As noted, the word Kadem or East also means beforehand or past times. For example, it says in Micah 7 verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Kadem. So Kadem means east, but it also means old or aforetime. The B'nai Kadem or sons east refers to those who continue to cling to the law, annulled in the past through Christ's work, simply because they cannot let go of it. They're full of that in Israel today, and that will continue into the tribulation period. Such a thought is carefully detailed in the book of Hebrews, such as Hebrews 10.29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose that he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? They're giving up on the grace, and they're saying, we want to stay with the law. That is what that's speaking of. It next noted that these enemies crossed over and encamped in Valley Jezreel. The word means depth of God sows. It signifies Israel's false ways and God's sowing just due into their lives. Hosea 1.5, 
It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Like most prophecies, Hosea has an immediate fulfillment and a future one. First, Hosea prophesies of the casting off of Israel. You are not my people. That is Hosea chapter 1, and Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 9. Then he prophesies of the calling again of Israel. You are my people. That's Hosea chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2. The first set, this is from Hosea 1. Now, when she had weaned lo Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And then Paul in Romans 9 uses that saying, the Jews are out right now. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people, speaking of the Gentiles who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. So he's showing a transfer from the Jewish nation to the Gentile church. But we got the second two sets of verses from Hosea 2 and 1 Peter 2. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. And then 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10 quotes that. But you are a chosen generation, speaking to the end time Jews, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. In verse 34, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, the gospel, as is seen in previous sermons. The meaning was seen in citing Galatians 3, where acceptance of the gospel means being clothed in Christ. It is the gospel that makes that come about. At that time, Gideon blew the trumpet. It is the calling of the gospel resounding out. The seven-year treaty Israel made with the Antichrist will be annulled. As noted, saving Israel from the place of judgment, Midian, is the main part of Gideon's calling. This came after the first objective, tearing down the altar of Baal, and that was taken care of. The truth is that the messenger of the Lord is, in fact, the Lord incarnate, Jesus. He is not merely a man who is the Messiah of Israel, but the God-man. This is key and central in understanding the true gospel. If you don't believe that, you do not believe the true gospel. It next noted, and cried Abiezer after him. It is an anticipation of the approval and help of the Father, Father of help upon those who accept the gospel message. It says in John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That's why there's this difference between the previous sermons where it was uh, Avi Ha'etzri and this time it's Avi Ezer. And all translations, they just skip over it and translate them the same. So you have no idea that there's a difference and that something is being told us. But we're being told that right here with his name. At the same time, verse 35 said, And messenger sent in all Manasseh, and cried also he after him. As always, the name Manasseh, to forget from a debt, anticipates Christ, who forgets our sins, having paid our sin debt. Likewise, it also noted, And messenger sent in Asher, and in Zebulun, and in Naphtali, and ascended to meet them. It is like a smorgasbord of theology. 
the state of the people upon reception of the gospel is blessed, Asher. They are given an eternal inheritance, glorious dwelling place, Zebulun. And these are the result of the work of Christ, my wrestlings, Naphtali, apart from works or apart from personal merit. It's by grace alone. This will be the state of Israel in the future. However, in anticipation of that, and to be certain that this is what is being conveyed, Gideon goes through the account of the fleece. Thus, the account is personal, using the term, the God, that demonstrates a right standing with the Lord. And said Gideon unto thee, God, if you are Savior in my hand, Israel, according to which have spoken. Think of the typology. If you are the Savior in my, the gospel's hand, Israel. Gideon is clothed with the Spirit, and it was inferred that this was the Spirit confirming his word through Gideon. Is the gospel truly Israel's salvation? That's what's being asked here, basically. The sign of the fleece will show if it is so. Verse 37, then opened with, Behold, I placing fleece in the wool in the threshing floor. The test of the gospel is to place a fleece from a word signifying to cut off into the threshing floor, the place of judgment. Then Gideon used a less common word translated as set concerning the fleece. The word comes from a primitive root signifying to place permanently. The fleece, the cutting off, is being forcefully and permanently set out. Previously, sin was dealt with under the law through the Day of Atonement. That is signified by the wool. It says in Isaiah 1, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The idea is whiteness and purity. Sin was cut off through the law. The first test was, if dew become upon the fleece to her separation and upon all earth, dryness. That was the time of the law for Israel. The law alone covered tau, dew, with life, symbolized by the water pressed out of the fleece. The rest of the world remained apart from God's redemptive plans. Only Israel was given the law. Only they were in God's favor. The rest of the world was just doing its own thing under the dispensation of government, which overarches the dispensation of the law. Gideon, the gospel, knew this. However, he, not the law, is now being asked to lead Israel against the enemy. Therefore, he, through a series of cohortatives, jussives, interjections, anthropomorphisms, and so on, implores to have a more perfect representation of who he is in relation to Israel. There was the beat of the anvil marking the time of the law of Moses. But Gideon asks for a second beat, that of the time of the gospel. Maybe the gospel was also effective for those under the law, and no change is needed. The second test will determine if it is so. Notice the difference in prepositions for the two propositions. I put them both side by side, and you'll see exactly what's going on. The Bible shows these, but you don't see it in the English. It just says, you know, set this here or something. Watch this. It's amazing. If do become upon the fleece to her separation and upon all the earth, dryness, chorev, the law, dryness. It says then in verse 39, let there be, I pray, dryness, chorev, the law, unto the fleece to her separation and upon all the earth become due. So it says upon, upon, and then it says unto, upon. We're going to go through this again in a minute. Gideon's words are purposeful. 
If this is how it is, then the situation will be perfectly evident from a proper response to his plea. The horev, or dryness, meaning the law, upon all the earth is man under sin because of the law given to Adam. Israel was also under law, but it was a law that offered atonement for sin, something lacking outside of Israel. With that requested, and did Elohim thus in the night the it. It only said Elohim, not the Elohim. To be in a right standing with God, one must be in a right standing with what God is doing. First was the time of the law, and then there is the grace that follows. The first must cease for the second to be realized. Therefore, it said in verse 40, and is dryness, horev, the law, unto the fleece to her separation, and upon all the earth was due. If you put the three together, you'll see exactly what's going on. What Gideon has asked for as a confirmation is exactly what God provided. The second beat of the anvil is what God has purposed. It says in Hebrews 10, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's all right there in the words. And translations just kind of go around it and they don't show you these significant changes in what is being said. Where Israel under the law had no life, the whole world under the gospel, meaning any who accept it, is covered with dew. What we have seen today is a spiritual reality that is actually working out right in the world, even as we live and move in it. Time is moving forward, and it will lead to a real tribulation period where real calamity will come upon the entire earth. But that physical reality is something that is actually being worked out in the spiritual world. First, the rapture will take place before the tribulation begins. Scripture is clear on that. The world that has rejected Jesus will fall under judgment. This will include Israel. However, God covenanted with them that he would bring them into the new covenant as a nation. This means that the law, the basis for the old covenant, must end. For it to end, Israel must agree to what the new covenant offers. This is available to anyone who accepts it at any time. However, Israel as a nation must also nationally accept it. Gideon, the gospel, is a means of that occurring, both for individuals and for national Israel. The account of Gideon and the fleece has been given for us to see this. Israel will learn the lesson of the fleece someday. However, and very sadly, many people who claim to be followers of Christ Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles, have never learned it. Instead, they cling to the law to find their justification before God. Paul argues against such an attitude in the most vehement manner. When we read the words of Revelation 4-2 through 19-10, we read words of disaster, real disaster that is coming upon the entire earth, but they are self-inflicted wounds being worked out on a global scale. All of it will stem from a rejection of what God has offered in Jesus Christ. There is one gospel and one Jesus. Salvation is found in him and the message that properly speaks of him. Be sure that the Jesus you are following is the one the Bible proclaims, for there is not another. 
in 2 Corinthians 11. He says there is another Jesus. It's the one that the Mormons proclaim. It's the one that the Jehovah's Witnesses proclaim. He fulfilled the law. He is God. He is the second member of the Trinity, etc. All of these points are absolutely key in understanding what God is doing. If you deny those things, you're not going to be a part of what God is doing. There is one Jesus and one gospel. Hold fast to the grace of God in Christ. It is the message that God has provided for the redemption of man. God in Christ has done the work. We can now do the praising for what he has done. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, it's the most wonderful thing that you take this obscure story of a fleece and you get the same story that has been presented in a thousand different ways already in typology. I'm trying to show you the difference between law and grace, what you need and what you need to get rid of. And he shows us again and again in various ways to cover every possible base so that we understand this lesson. I said in the Bible study on Thursday, something that somebody yesterday said to me, I had never thought of that. I knew it, but I had just never thought of it. The very first thing ever said to man, and I've said this before, are words of law. If you do this thing, you will live. The very first thing ever uttered by God to man, as recorded in Scripture, are words of law. At the end of the Old Testament, it ends on a curse. If you don't do this, I will come and strike the earth, the land with a curse, right? It's a curse. That's what the law provides. And then what comes? Matthew, in the introduction of the Savior, and how does it end? With grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The Lord, from the first words of the Bible to the very last, are showing us a contrast between what is pleasing to him and what is not pleasing to him. He will give grace if you get away from law. You failed the first time. You're not going to make it the second or the third or the tenth. The law will never satisfy God because it's you. God doesn't get any glory from you. Amen. He gets glory from doing this out of the goodness of who he is, giving his son for the sins of the world that were committed under the law. That is grace. Accept the grace. Accept what God has done and accept that Jesus Christ is God. Salvation, according to Jonah, is of the Lord. That's right. It's not of a created being like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. It is of the Lord himself. Our closing verse. Oh, wait, before I uh, finish up, I'll say, now you've heard the good news that God did it. It's up to you now to accept it, to receive by faith what Jesus Christ has done. He died. He was buried. He rose again. That is grace. And if you believe that, and accept it as your payment for your sins, you will be saved. That's all that God asks. Don't try to mar grace. Our closing verse comes from Acts 15. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they that's it. Grace. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ. Next week is Judges 7, 1 through 8. We're not yet done. There's more to tell. Sakes alive. It's entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel. Part 5. That'll be our 22nd Judges Sermon. Thank you, Jay. I told him that we had um, somebody from Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, sign in today on the chat. I said he's got to yell really loud for that guy to hear, so... <laughs> I think he heard it. Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you.
It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right, I got a poem for you and we'll be done. But before I do, I've got a question and I have absolutely nothing to give you except for a ride in my YF-23. Yes, it is, YF-23, because I just didn't even think to bring anything. So this is your gift. I will take you and fly you all the way down to um, Key West and back. It'll take about three minutes to make the trip, okay, (laughs) if you get this question. Okay, 1 Kings 6 verse 1 says that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in what year after coming out of Egypt? No, this isn't that hard. If you've read it, you're going to say, I can't believe it. Did somebody raise your hand? No. The 480th year after coming out of Egypt. Oh, of course. You don't tell me you don't remember that. How can you not remember that? That is like a key point of Judges. The 480th year after coming out, nobody got it. Nobody, you know, I'm going to save a lot of fuel. Fuel is getting very expensive, and so I'm going to save a lot of money on this today. The reason why you got that is because I forgot to put a question in here um, from the easy file. And so I just went to the Bible, and that's the first thing I turned to. So, But I thought it was, I would have gotten that right away, 480th year. Come on, guys. All right. I even said when I was typing it, man, I'm going to have everybody yelling this out at once. Crickets. All right, here we go. Gideon, judge of Israel, part four. Then all the Midianites and the Malachites, the people of the east, so many the word does tell, gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Abizrites gathered behind him as one. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, for sure. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, his sleep did cease and squeezed the fleece together. He wrung a bowlful of water of dew out of the fleece. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more to you. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so in that night. The miracle did abound. It was dry on the fleece only but there was dew on all the ground. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the dew all around the fleece, the Gentiles and the whole world being saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that the story is not over for Israel, that the dew will be on the fleece again someday, and they will be saved because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The sign of the fleece will be cut off, 
but the people themselves will be saved because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you that we are not under law, we were never under law, and we will never be under law. And the nation of Israel, because of Jesus, will be freed from the law. And they will partake of what is offered to them finally. After all these many years, you are faithful, it will come about, and we wait for that day. May it be soon. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week I read you the words for the next week's sermon, and I want to read you just a few of the words from next week's sermon for the one coming up. Um, I said this in the Bible study, um, that uh, there's been a separation between two camps. This is what you're going to get. Two different views on what is being said here. Um, And none of them are right. I can tell you that right now. But you can, uh, I'll read you these verses, just a couple of them, and then you can go home and think about what is God telling us with this? Um, But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them. There's this giant camp of Midian. There's Israel over here and they have like 30,000 people. He says, way too many. Anybody that's afraid, go on home. Okay, there's still too many people left, like 10,000 against 135,000. He's like, that's too many. All right, so um, he says, we need to go down to the water and I'll separate them for you there. Okay, Um, then it will be of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink and the number of those who lap putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. So he whittled them down to 300 men to take on a force of 135,000 men. And as I said Thursday, the two camps are, he picked the 300 best men because they were attentive in this way. And the other camp says he picked the 300 worst men because they weren't attentive in this way. Okay, whatever. That is the two camps. Both of them are wrong. I want you to think, what is God telling us in that story? Why did he do what he did? Why did he use the words he used? And what is it telling us? It's wonderful. It's a wonderful story. If the rapture doesn't happen, you'll hear it next week. (laughs) 